Hello, welcome to the second episode of SF Crossing the Gulf. I'm Karen Burnham. And I'm Karen Lord. Excellent. So, um, so we've... We've, uh, we're getting ourselves organized here, and we spent last episode talking about Ted Chang's uh, short story collection, uh, Story of Your Life and Others. We didn't quite finish that collection, but we're going to hold off talking about the rest of it, and that is in part because we want to talk about Ted Chang when we also talk about Greg Egan, and we've picked mm-hmm. out a selection of Egan short stories that... Uh, are worth talking about and are also pretty much all available online and the for those who want to read ahead those stories are going to be um, Closer, Yayuka, The Plank Dive, Oceanic, uh, Oracle, Singleton, Gory, and Crystal Knights and then today we'll be talking about Edgar Middleholzer's My Bone and My Flute. Mm -hmm, My Bones and My Flute, yes. And um, we've already mentioned that we'll be talking later about Erna Broadbur's The Rainmaker's Mistake. Mm-hmm. And Karen, you had another one you wanted to recommend. I had Ghosts by Cordella Forbes. Um, some people who follow the, um, this, the SF Squeak cast would be aware that I did mention it as my squee, <laughs> as um, my recommended book. Um, it's being published, um, well as we record this, by the time it actually gets uploaded, it will be August. So it will be available. It's already available at the publisher's website, People Tree Press. And that's P-E-E-P-A-L. Yes. Thank you. I should have mentioned that. Um, And that Ghost by Cordella Forbes, that is a a new book and one I'm quite excited about. And then I think the last book for Contemporary SF that we're going to do is going to be, well, Contempor- we'll put quotes around contemporary. It's from 1998. Um, the Sparrow by Mary Doria Russell. And yes. that should, at the moment, that's going to round off our first our first block of reading. Mm-hmm. So today we're going to be talking about this book, My Bones and My Flute. It's from the 50s. And Karen, do you want to start by giving us a summary? I'm going to give a, a rather detailed summary this time because I'm aware this book is going to be quite hard to find for most people. It's a, a good old-fashioned ghost story. Um, set in Guyana, it starts off in in the in the cities, um, sorry, the towns I should say, um, where your protagonist, your um, kind of first person narrator, Milton Woodsley, um, runs into an old family friend who says, "Oh, um, would you like to come with me to our place in the interior, in the jungle? Maybe do some some pictures and some some art." Because he realizes that he's a, a kind of a, a a wannabe artist, not necessarily an actual career artist yet, but that's that's his, his aspiration. And um, But he realizes that something seems to be slightly amiss, and eventually the story comes out that um, this Mr. Nevinson has come into the possession of a strange piece of parchment that um, had been previously kept sealed in the canister. But when the owner died and he kept, the owner had it as some sort of almost like a magical talisman is supposed to have some sort of powers. Um, when, when he died, the, the woman he was living with opened it up and touched this parchment and then died in mysterious circumstances. So the parchment then came to Mr. Nevinson um, because it was, um, it was written in Dutch, supposedly the notes of um, a planter, a Dutch planter from back in the 1700s who would have 
um, died around the time of the, um, the slave rebellion they had then. And the, the parchment itself, um, he, was, he was trying to translate it, but from the moment he touched it, he started to hear a flute occasionally, just, just a random note from a flute playing in the distance. And then as time went on, he realized that the sound seemed to be coming closer and nobody else can hear this flute. And then one day, his daughter notices the sound of the flute. He was like, um, have, you, have you been at my desk? And he's, she was like, yeah, I may have opened a drawer and, and touched some old papers of yours. And he realizes that his daughter touched the parchment and is now also hearing the flute that nobody else can hear. So he unburdens himself to um, Milton about you know this, this sort of strange occurrence and how the woman who died strangely was supposedly led by the sound of a flute and that he's now starting to worry that um, that the way the flute music is coming closer, that maybe he too is going to be pulled away into some kind of supernatural adventure. But he's trying to be very rational about it. So Milton listens and, you know, he finds this all very interesting. But, you know, of course, it has to be a rational reason. So he will test it out and he lays his hand on the parchment and waits to hear the flute. And, of course, he starts to hear the flute as well. So they, they go to this place in the interior and... The thing about the parchment is that it says that this, this, this Dutch planter says that you have to find where his bones are interred. His, his bones are buried and his flute are buried in this, this place in the jungle. And you have to, to dig them up and give them a Christian burial for him to be able to rest. Because, um, you know, he's died in these horrible circumstances and, and his spirit is, is not at ease. And he's going to make you die as well until you give him this Christian burial. So after that, it is just chapter after chapter of increasing dread, where you begin to, the, the, the flute music starts to come closer for the people who've touched it um, earliest. So it gets to the point where, for Mr. Nevinson, he's hearing it in the room. His daughter is hearing it outside, and Milton's still hearing it in the distance. And then Mr. Nevinson starts to see this figure out of the corner of his eye and he feels compelled to follow the figure. <laughs> um, and he knows if he does, he's probably gonna end up like this woman, just walking into the jungle and ending up dead from shock or from walking into a river and drowning or something. So um, it's, it's, it, just, it just sort of builds and builds and builds. And I think that that's enough of a summary for now. I'm going to expand a little more as we go on, but but that's eventually what 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 the the framework is, and it does in fact, of course, and happily happily enough, that they are led to the place of the jungle where his remains are. They do give it a Christian burial, and everything then seems to be all right, um, and the spirits are at peace, and the flute music goes away, and everybody is still alive at the end which may be a disappointment for some people who like things a little more gory. But as I said, it still gives you that marvelously creepy, you know, every, every, every chapter sort of ends on a sort of a mini cliffhanger. So you're like, <gasps> you know, dun, 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 that kind of feeling. <laughs> it's, um, it's almost, it's a very 1950s kind of way to write a book, isn't it? It is, it is. It definitely <laughs> feels of its time. Yeah, yeah. So, um, so yes, yeah, so, so that's, that's what the structure is about, that um, their, their lives are kind of ruled by this eerie flute music. And a little later on, there's also going to be this strange gray 
smoke that kind of oozes out of the jungle and tries to take over the daughter. Um, but <laughs> that, that's, that's, um, that's all um, part of what we'll discuss later. Yes. So, of course, I've, I've lived with this story for some time. Like I said, I did it at school. And I honestly thought to myself, what are you going to make of this, Karen? So what did you make of it? I liked it quite a bit. I really did. I didn't find it terribly frightening. Yeah, as a ghost story, I didn't find it frightening. And partway that's because the author makes very clear in his introductory note that uh, that everyone survives. Everybody lives. <laughs> <laughs> Everybody lives. The, the, the introductory note tells about how the narrator, who's Milton, um, has been talking with Mr. and Mrs. Nevinson and his now wife, Jessie, um, about publishing this story, you know, about these events that happened 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. So that does take a bit of the, um, it takes a bit Attention. of the edge off, doesn't it? <laughs> it does. It's true. It's true. You know that they're going to be all right in the end. Yeah. Right. Which makes it, um, for me, almost more enjoyable, actually. Because, you know, not having to sort of worry along with the plot. Oh, no. Is it, you know, is <laughs> it going to make it? Oh, gosh. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I really loved his descriptive style. Ah, which which bits, when you say descriptive, which descriptions stuck in your memory the most? Why, I have a page bookmarked right here. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> okay, so this one stuck out, of, struck, struck me enough that I actually did, I, I almost hate to admit it, I didn't have anything else with me, and, and I dog-eared the, the page. <laughs> uh-huh. and, and, oh, there will be people who will come at me hammering tongues you should never i'm sorry oh come on i know the copy you have that book's already pretty battered <laughs> you can be let off for that one <laughs> it's held up pretty well i have to I, I give this book some some respect okay but the beat of the petter plant downstream had become an indigo blanket of sound almost unheard a background against which the occasional chirp of a frog would stand out like a pink wet petal Yes, I remember that. That one, that one struck me as well. There's a synesthesia there, mm-hmm. where he mm-hmm. describes a, a particular sense or phenomenon in a in terms of a sense that it wouldn't normally be associated with. Yes, yes. Um, so, and so- do you know, whenever I I came across bits like that, what struck me is that I almost felt as if I was reading an author who really did have a very deep appreciation for the language and the craft, but was also very conscious of trying to write a book that would sell. Yeah, it does, so, yeah. So he's sort of like trying to write this sort of, yes, just an ordinary ripping ghost story, and then all of a sudden he'll get poetic. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and then he'll rein himself back and, okay, back to the suspense, and then he'll plot along for a bit, and then all of a sudden, whoosh, there it goes again. It's so funny. Yeah, you're quite right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah and, and another thing I noticed is, that the best descriptions are of the jungle. Yes, yes, definitely. The people, you know, one, there's the inter, the introductory description of everybody, which kind of establishes their place in society and, and what have you. And then after that, yeah, it is the jungle. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's almost a character in its own right. I know that sounds like a little bit of a cliche, please forgive me. <laughs> but honestly, when it comes to description of setting, I'm realizing that quite a lot of Guyanese literature, quite a lot of Jamaican literature, um, and, and, and they're entitled because they actually have amazing landscapes, amazing natural resources. Um, there's a lot to describe. It's very rich. It's very beautiful. And that completely comes out in, in what the authors um, do in their work. 
I'm, I was just flipping randomly here, or sort of flipping through, and, and I caught a, a, a little description of candleflies. Oh. And again, it's just a, a beautiful piece, you know, beautiful little piece. Actually done a little bit in the second person, talking about, you know, you have to avoid the inclination to bury your face in your pillow as though to avoid some intangible menace. <laughs> <laughs> uh-huh, uh-huh, yes. And, and even his, his vocabulary... At times, he just comes up with some words that, yes, when we were doing it in school, it was a little bit of a problem. Um, where y- you get the strange sense of two levels, where, again, on the one hand, it's just supposed to be a commercial sell-to-the-masses kind of book. But then on the other hand, he's definitely got some pretensions to be more than that. Right, um, right. So so it's kind of funny to see to see that sort of common structure, but then to just have these, like, flights of of something more in, mm-hmm. in the midst of it yeah well yeah. and one thing that i'm that this this book struck me it definitely was not is, is it does not fit in with my perception of magical realism <laughs> um in fact this book okay do you know uh, charles fort and the fortian movement Wait a minute, that sounds familiar. You better tell me a bit, though, so I can jog my memory. Okay, so Charles Fort was a, a figure in the early 20th century. He was just this eccentric guy who lived in uh, lived in New York. He actually was... Um, he wrote some science fiction short stories, mm-hmm. oddly enough. I, I read his biography. Um, but his thing was collecting weird factual stories, or stories that, as far as he could tell, were factual. Um, just mm-hmm. the weird things that happen. Ball lightning happens. Fish fall oh. from the sky sometimes. And that just there's happens. a magazine dedicated now to that. Now there's a magazine. Yeah, magazine. that's how I heard of them, yeah. And so, you, you know me. I am a diehard skeptic. I'm a <laughs> materialist person. I'm a physicist. I'm an engineer. <laughs> that's the world I live in. But I used to subscribe to Skeptic Magazine. And mm-hmm. I couldn't stand it after a couple of years. I mean, it was just so <laughs> unrelentingly negative. This isn't true, and that's not true, and that's not mm-hmm. true either, and you all need to stop having fun. <laughs> and uh, I know that's not how they meant to come off, but the Fortean magazine, they actually are somewhat skeptical, but they're skeptical in an open way of, mm-hmm. we need to find out more about that. Hey, that could be true. And yeah, sometimes they publish stories about people attending fairy parties, and even you can tell the editors are like, this guy was high off his noggin. <laughs> but it's a cool story, so we're going to run yeah. it. You know, yeah. I mean, it, it just, the world is more fun in a Fortean mm-hmm. In a, if you look at it in a Fortean way, and this book struck me as very Fortean. There's there's oh. a thing that's happening. Everyone knows it's not particularly rational, but it's what's happening. <laughs> well, that uh, you, you you raise an important point there because you you can almost laugh at how they keep trying to find consistency in what's happening. Mm-hmm. So even though it's a supposedly supernatural occurrence. They're kind of like, well, maybe the, the rule is you have to touch the parchment to hear the flute. And then later on, there's a point where Mrs. Nevinson, not having touched the parchment, starts to hear the flute. And they're like, wait a minute, that's not consistent. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's like, really? You want your ghost to like have rules and regulations well, here? of course they do. So, they're trying so was, to fit it into a natu- natural framework. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That was well, fun, yeah. And then one thing that just really surprised me, that I think the thing that surprised me the most was the turn it took at the end where... The the plantation guy, uh, the the guy who appeared to have written the original curse, yes, almost becomes equally victimized because there's these demonic forces too. So there's a it's not just the family and the the ghost but, haunting. There's a but, third. But, but, 
this was the cool bit because when you read it and he's speculating about what's going on with him he's actually saying he's actually recognizing that perhaps he's not looking at um, dark influences from the outside what he's actually seeing is his own darkness inside Mm. His own, his own evil, or his own um, kind of warped ambition, taking some sort of separate personality from himself. So you did get the impression that um, I, I found that bit kind of interesting because many times I've read um, sort of set in the Caribbean type of stories where if there's something supernatural happening, it's kind of almost like the movie Poltergeist, where it's like, oh, you. You, you built your house on the burial ground of, of this Indian tribe or something like that. Mm-hmm. And it's all, it's all very external. But when you see that note at the end, this is, this is when they have fully translated um, the, the, the papers of, of, this, of this planter. Um, it's really about him falling into madness. Yeah. And, and somehow realizing in the midst of his madness, because, and this, this was something I found amusing as well. Amusing probably not being the right word, but bear with me. Um, he literally sold his soul to the devil as far as, as he understood that to be. He made a pact with the devil because there was something he wanted desperately. What did he want? Mind you, this is a man, he's, he's um, in, in, in the midst of Guyana. There's um, you know, hints of a, of a slave rebellion starting to, to murmur around. His, his wife wants to leave. Um, I'm sure he has more pressing matters on his hand, but the thing is, he plays the flute. And all he can think about is, I can adapt this flute to get three more notes out of it. This is my ambition in life. I would sell my soul to the devil to get three more notes out of this flute. And that's what he does. Yeah. That is the most trivial thing. So all the whole book hinges on this man desperately wanting to create a flute that has three more notes than the one he has presently. Yep. And, and he sells his soul to the devil and he gets that flute with three more notes and he's happy and then he's going mad. And then he's going mad and then he gets killed by a slave rebellion. Yes, pretty much. <laughs> and, and then, and then he kind of wanders, wanders the earth, restless, dragging other people to their death. And part of him is almost trying to get someone to come and give him this Christian burial so he can sleep. And then the other part of him, that kind of, as I said, the, the warped, ambitious, um, kind of evil part of him, is actually trying to stop the people who are trying to help him. Right. So again, in the book, there's a push and pull. The flute is supposed to be trying to call you to where his bones are. But then the, the sort of the gray smoke that comes out of the jungle and, and um, starts to possess the daughter in her sleep is actually sort of his, his, his evil side trying to stop them from reaching where his bones are. So it's, it's a very, very psychological thing in a way. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. But I, I like the fact that it that it turned into a sort of three way battle instead of a two way battle at the end. Um three way. How so? How so? Well again there's a just like you said, there's the family and then there's the mm-hmm. two parts of the haunting. Okay. So the family being the third part. Yeah, exactly. Okay, gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. Yes. But can we talk about Rayburn? <laughs> Well, you know, you know, Rayburn is my favorite. Let me explain t- to our listeners who Rayburn is. Please do. The, the place that they go to in in the interior um, has, because they're not there all the time, has a caretaker, um, a caretaker by the name of Rayburn. He's about forty years old. He is he is black. We didn't we didn't talk about the racial dynamics of the piece. No, we which haven't is, yet. Which is key. Okay, this this is important, and I'll I'll try to explain this. Um, the the Nevinsons. 
um, have what is referred to as a tip of the tar brush. But Mr. Nevinson pretty much looks white. And um, Milton is um, more of an olive tint, but they are very much in a sort of a, um, a sort of a middle to upper class. We don't mix with certain people of a certain class and a certain color kind of stratum. So when you, when you encounter them, they, at first glance, if you were reading it as if you were reading an American novel, you would say, oh, they're white. But you have to just stop a little bit and put a slightly darker tinge on them, very, very slight, and understand that these are people who are trying to maintain a certain place in society. They, they, have, they have a little edge, they have a little societal edge by virtue of the light color of their skin, the very light color of their skin, and their ancestry, because they are descended more from the planters than from the enslaved, and they're trying to hold on to that very, very carefully. Now, Rayburn, you know, there's no doubts about Rayburn. Rayburn is black. He's the caretaker. He's the one who says sir and ma'am and so forth. And, and this book, if you are somebody who thinks, for example, that Huckleberry Finn shouldn't have certain names and titles in it, <laughs> this book would offend you severely. Yeah, well, and, and it's, it's not 1950s vocabulary where that is concerned. Well, and especially <laughs> because there's Rayburn and he's black, but then there are the Indians. Oh, yes, yes. And, and that's a whole different... And, oh, yeah. And there are bits in there. Um, Milton, younger Milton... Is, is portrayed fairly honestly. He's, he's a young man who thinks very much of himself. He thinks that um, the people of his class are, you know, narrow-minded, bourgeois types. Um, you know, he's, he's sort of slightly scornful of them, even though, and, and he prides himself on breaking beyond these class barriers. He actually embarrasses Rayburn by offering to shake his hand. And Rayburn knows that's not the way things go around here. <laughs> and, um, you know, but the elder um, Milton, who's, who's sort of narrating all this, takes the time to laugh at younger Milton a little bit. But there are certain things that um, remain constant. So, for example, although, um, although younger Milton does try to, you know, not look at class, not look at race, he's incredibly sexist. Oh, my goodness, yes. And, and older Milton laughs at younger Milton being incredibly sexist a little bit. Um, but even older Milton is incredibly racist towards the way he describes the Indians. Mm-hmm. So there, there, there are little um, lines about, um, you know, one, one, they describe one character as looking with naive Indian eyes. And I'm like, what the hell are naive Indian eyes? What kind of phrase is that? You know, yeah, it, yeah. It, was, it, was just, it was just one of those phrases where you're like, yeah, you are steeped in this, in this sort of, idea of of what these races are supposed to be like aren't you well and then so, there's, i mean there's the dialect that the indians have which is you know infantilized thank you that's exactly the word i was going for yeah yeah oh mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah so so yeah you you kind of <laughs> there there's all of that it's all a part of it and and it's important to consider because we're, we're beginning to talk about rayburn as i said he's a caretaker when things start happening to a crisis point. When Mr. Nevinson is to the point where he hears the flute and he sees a shadowy figure and Milton has to physically restrain him from going through the door. When um, Jessie becomes affected as well, she's hearing the flute, but she's also becoming affected by this, this thing sort of taking hold of her. 
Um, when um, Mrs. Nevinson becomes pulled in and realizes, okay, you guys are not making this up. This is really serious. They say to her, okay, if this progresses, we're going to also have to restrain Jesse. We don't have enough people to, to deal with this. Uh, Milton's going to be affected as well. We need Rayburn's help. And she's like, no, no, we're not having him in the house. You know, this, right. this is beneath our dignity. And, and, you know, so she's, she's pitching a fit. She actually pitches a fit, like, you know, twice, insisting that she does not want this black man in the house because this is beneath their dignity and they shouldn't have to do this. And it's absolutely disgusting. And how, how could they even suggest this? But of course, you know, things come to a crisis point and they confide in Rayburn and say, well, Rayburn, um, this is going to sound a little strange and we're not mad, honestly, but there's some strange things happening in the house. So we need you to to come in and, and help us at night because when this flute music begins, strange things are happening. And then she does this amazing little kind of <laughs> turnabout where um because i guess partly because they're depending on him and 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 mind you rayburn is like he's he's the perfect caretaker he's almost he reminds me of is it albert batman's um ballet or yeah Yeah. he's like an albert you know even though when things happen he's he will be screaming along with everybody else he's the first person to to pull himself together Mm -hmm. and be pragmatic and do sensible stuff so he's 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 fantastic he's not your horror movie, you know, first person to die kind of thing. No, no, no. no. He's the one who would survive the zombie apocalypse. <laughs> so, so she gets to the point where it's like, you know, me and Jesse have cups of Ovaltine before we go to sleep and I must make up Rayburn's cup for him. And Rayburn, make sure you get enough sleep because we need you to be well rested in case you have to save us later on. <laughs> and she's just, she's just like gone, gone completely in the other direction. Um, you know, kind of confiding in him and so on. And I'm um, sorry, taking care of him and so on. And the funny thing about it is that um, this is not a change in her overall view of society. It's, it's just Rayburn, who is still, of course, extremely respectful to her. And it's just the situation that they're in. Because older Milton mentions to her, um, you know, 20 years later on, mentions to her oh remember when you were so upset about the idea of Rayburn coming in to stay in the house and help look over us and she kind of laughs it off but she's unrepentant she's like yeah of course I haven't changed my views so it's, it's a very important point to make where you know you might think this is supposed to be one of these nice pleasant stories oh look racist woman gets to befriend black man and becomes yeah. converted yeah. no <laughs> don't be so naive come on yes you know she does you know end up being very nice to him but that doesn't change her that that's that's not the way the society works um the society works where people are dependent on certain barriers being in place and they're not going to really do anything to jeopardize that so um so yeah but but rayburn was he was the pillar of strength he he was sort of like the, the thread of sanity there are times when, you know, people are freaking out and starting to argue and, and he just sort of stands there and kind of looks back and forth and like observing them like, oh, goodness, will you guys just be quiet? Right, right. <laughs> and, and even even when Milton finally like gets completely hysterical and, and Rayburn and Mr. Nevinson have to restrain him and so on. So I, I, I loved Rayburn's character. He was he, in a way he, he almost stood in for the reader when the reader was starting to say, is this maybe too much melodrama? <laughs> that they just look at Rayburn and Rayburn standing there going, yeah, yeah, too much melodrama. <laughs> <laughs> well, 
well, it was a very self-conscious book in a way, wasn't it? Because there are a couple times when Milton basically says, so you may be wondering why the heck we did that. Or <laughs> yeah. you may be wondering why I just went through all this description of this thing. Um, I remember particularly, um, let's see, it's Mrs. Nevinson starts having dreams... Mm-hmm. where she's being shown what's pretty obviously shown the path to where the bones and the flute are. Yes. And at one point Milton says, so you might be wondering why we didn't just look for the place in the jungle that she was obviously dreaming about. But but no, no, it was more complicated than that. that <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, because I was kind of wondering why didn't, I mean, that's so obviously pointing you towards the solution of the plot. Why not just go? <laughs> but again, that's coming from a very genre convention, which is not necessarily what, how people would be reading this. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, yeah, yeah. Um, and I think, well, it's, it's, well, let's actually, now that you mentioned that, talk about the the, the storytelling convention that's bound up in that. Um, this is, I'm beginning to realize, quite a common thing in Caribbean literature. I certainly did not invent it. Certainly <laughs> did. Um, where you, you have a, a protagonist who either they are in the midst of the action or they might be somebody, not in this particular case, or they might be somebody who later on comes over, comes around and finds a diary or hears a story from a distant relative or what have you. And they do this sort of um, I'm telling you the story kind of approach um, where um, it's, you know, there are times when he dips into his journal. He says, you know, I'm not giving you my journal entries, but no, this time I will. Okay, this, this, just this once. I'm going to let you see what my journal entries from this period look like so you'll see exactly how freaked out we were. Right, <laughs> he, gives right. you, he gives you a few of the little snippets. And I'm just looking at that and I'm thinking, you know, yeah, this, this whole sort of... Um, um, going back and forth in terms of the style and how you choose to tell things and even even the order in which you choose to tell things is all very common. I've just said it's, it's common in Caribbean literature, but I'm pausing because you know what I'm remembering? The Turn of the Screw. Okay. Have you read it? Uh, long ago. Okay. Like high but, school. But again, that kind of book was the kind of book where it starts off where everybody's like, you know, sitting around saying, yes, and here is my story of strange things that happened in my life. And here's my ghost story. And well, no, I have the real, you know, kind of scary story. And the, the, ghost, the ghost story genre does have that convention of somebody who lived to survive telling the tale or somebody who knew somebody who lived to survive telling the tale. So I shouldn't make it sound like it's just a Caribbean literature thing. It's also part of the genre the, well, the subgenre that works very well. It's absolutely, and well, it's, it's very much part of the history of, of the genre, um, all the way from about 1900 to the 1930s. It mm-hmm. was almost rare to find a quote, and again, they, they hadn't really, the genre walls hadn't been built yet then, right? <laughs> yes. If you had a tale that had something fantastic or something that we would now consider science fictional, Mm-hmm. Oftentimes, it would be framed in such a way to try and make it "quote unquote" rational. The time yes. traveler had come in, run in, told his story to all these club members sitting around, then run back out again. Right? <laughs> yes, um, yes, exactly that. Even yeah. oh my goodness, I'm trying to remember. There's one. There's one story where the framing device was so. It was more fantastic than the actual plot. It was. Is maybe it was the Purple Cloud by M. P. Shiel. Okay, um, don't know that one. Let's see. 
the purple cloud is a post-apocalyptic story, and I think the way that it's quote-unquote framed is by this is a story that a woman being cared for by a psychic was relating as it, as she was getting these ethereal vibrations from the future. I mean, it was, <laughs> I was like, okay, if that's your framing mechanism. <laughs> Whoa, talk about bending over backwards. <laughs> exactly. I'm like, you might have had to go a little too far for that one. I, now, The Purple Cloud is absolutely worth reading. It's a very intense story. Again, very un- unpleasant in to modern sensibilities, but it's very good. But, but yeah, I was so glad, you know, when I started reading the history of the genre, I was so glad when they didn't feel like they had to do that anymore. <laughs> you <laughs> yes. know, just tell the story. It's okay. Uh-huh. But it is funny when you mention that because that, that insistence on trying to find, even if it's an irrational rationality, mm-hmm. as a stupid phrase, what I mean is, it's sort of like within my bones and my flute, they're trying to find some sort of, of, of pattern to how the hauntings are occurring. Oh yeah, all, timing. Even, even if it's fantastical, it's like, no, 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 we have to have rules for this. We have to have some sort of structure so that we can, you know, situate exactly what's happening here in, in some sort of way that can be predicted predicted that's a thing yes uh, which, which is ironic because that's that's actually the scientific approach you, right. you know what the rules are so that you can then predict what's going to happen next oh yeah and they're taking data i mean the the timing between the when they hear the flute yeah they're like okay so we heard the flute at two in the morning we should be <laughs> safe until at least you know eight yeah yeah and they were they were very clear on that and again when the flute started um playing at the wrong time they were like oh no we can't depend on it anymore right right (laughs) no we had this figured out Uh uh-huh yeah yeah and and it's but in a way that is what helps to build the tension because they get to the point where they become accustomed where they're like it's okay it's all right we're being haunted but we know when it's going to happen we'll make sure and have you know Rayburn Wright to restrain Mr. Nevinson at 730 <laughs> <laughs> 7.30 to 7.34 he will be there to restrain Mr. Nevinson um no, you know, they'll, they'll light the candles at the window to stop the, the grey mass from overtaking Jesse um, at, at eight, 8 o'clock and you know they've got everything all sorted out so when things start no longer going according to schedule they're like no you're cheating you're cheating <laughs> <laughs> oh man and, and yes and then the tension does escalate and oh can I just say that for me um, quite rightly the climax of the novel is when they have found the track they and finally, of course, this happens at night. Go into the jungle because they, they, they're, they're on a ticking clock now. Right. Um, the um, things seem to be happening faster. The flutes getting closer. Um, the attacks are coming more frequently. And, and everything just seems to suggest that if they do not hurry up and, and find these bones, they're all going to be, you know, in perdition, haunting everybody along with this poor, this poor planter. So they, they go off into the jungle, and fortunately, the resourceful Rayburn is an experienced bushman, by which they mean that he knows the tracks and, and so on in the jungle. I'm telling you, he was their resource. Oh, yeah. And so they go into the jungle, and then there's this really eerie point where um, something pulls them along supernaturally. So it's not that they're just walking along a track as ordinary. They go through a part of the jungle that if there was a track, it's become overgrown or whatever. So they can feel, um, you know, vines and, and branches pulling at them and scratching them and tugging at their clothes. And they're being pulled through this at a, a huge speed. And then when they reach this clearing where the, the bones are supposed to be, they look and it's like, 
the clothing isn't torn, their skin isn't torn, they look completely undisturbed. It's almost as if they were just snatched into another dimension and, and sort of flung through the jungle in some way and then came out unscathed. And the way it's described, that was when I think the, the commercial tension, the commercial I'm writing a ghost story approach and the, the literary I'm being extremely um, good of my description and, and poetic prose and so forth, the two came together perfectly in that scene because mm. out of many different scenes in that book, that was the one that stuck with me for more than 20 years after I did it in school. Hmm. I know you're going to tell me you can't remember which bit this is, right? <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm looking at it as we speak, but no, because I'd been... I had been thinking to myself that the moment when the tension really heightened for me was the set piece when they're trying to keep the fires lit to keep the gray mass out of the room. Ah. You remember the one where they're like running from window to window? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Of course, that's You're, a much more... That, that, was, that was also a very good one. You're quite right. You're quite right. Well, yes. but that was a more active moment for the family. Yes, um, it was. Whereas this one, they were... they. Their agency wasn't necessarily their own at that moment. Exactly. They were they were completely helpless. And I have to confess, the scene you're describing, um, where, well, as I said, they're they're basically trying to keep this thing from taking over. And 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 they're they're trying to to outflank it because it's moving around. They know that it doesn't like fire, so they've lit candles at the window and they've they've done all sorts of things, but it's still got in. And and now they're trying to like, you know, they they move, I think it's Mrs. Nevinson's bed or right. Jesse's bed. Which one was it? I don't remember which bed. I don't remember which bed. But one one of the women has um, has actually been sort of taken over by this gray mass because it kind of, I think, settles into Mrs. Nevinson and gives her the dream of where the, the, th- the place is. Um, and so they tug away the other one and, and then it's almost like there's this cat and mouse sort of chase going on. But whenever I've read it, the tension for me has been diminished by trying to figure out where everybody's standing. Does that make any sense? No, I understand that. I didn't have that problem, but I totally understand what you're saying. So, so yeah, I, I'm so busy trying to visualize it. Like, okay, he's standing by the window now. He's gone over here. Now he's pulled the bed where... So I'm, I'm, I'm working on all these little silly details in my head trying to visualize it. And then the tension dials down for me. Okay, okay. So I have to toss that out in order to fully enjoy that scene. The scene I described to you, um, where they're just being pulled to the jungle, mm-hmm. there's, there's no location to worry about. There's no, where is everybody standing or whatever. It's just pure terror. Right, it's just pure right. terror. They're completely helpless. They're just, just being pulled along and they don't know where they're gonna end up. And 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 as I said, the, the, the words, the poetry, the, the prose at the time is, is just, it, it really works, yeah. Absolutely. Should we talk for a sec about rivers? <laughs> Yes, let us talk about rivers. <laughs> rivers and symbolism and, and heart of darkness. Oh, okay. <laughs> rivers and jungles and sim- symbolism. Uh, mm-hmm. I noticed that to get to the bones and the flute, they have to go upriver, mm-hmm. deeper into the jungle, which, as you point out, is very much, you know, the setting. Yes. Of course, heart of darkness does that whole, I mean, that just is... That's the metaphor, right? Mm-hmm, you know, going mm-hmm. up the river into the jungle. Yes. 
And even, I, I think I mentioned to you over email that there's a, a writer whose work this reminded me of. His name's Avram Davidson. He was a, mostly a short story writer back in the, um, oh, I think he was most active in the 60s through the 80s. Mm-hmm, Old mm-hmm. Earth Press put out a, um, an edition of his short stories that all centered on one character named Limekiller. And he sorry, was, huh? named the character was who? Limekiller. Okay. That was his last name, and that's how everyone referred to him. And he mm-hmm. was basically some kind of expat, I think British expat. The country, if I'm recalling correctly, and I'm afraid I read these short stories um, a few years ago, I'm not sure the country was ever named where he was, but he, it was um, based on Avram Davidson's time in Belize. Okay. Mm-hmm. In the 60s, I think. Mm-hmm. And the Middleholter book really reminded, they were reminded me of those stories they kind of evoked the same a, a lot of the same feel mm-hmm, and mm-hmm, sometimes mm-hmm. in Davidson's work the supernatural thing would take him up the river and into the jungle and sometimes it would come from the ocean really yeah that the, coming from the ocean actually surprises me well it was he was set mostly like he was kind of a beach bum not okay. quite, but <laughs> not quite what you'd think of as today as a beach bum, but for the time, I think that that's accurate. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. So some, sometimes, uh, and I'm trying to remember, the name of one of the stories is um, Manatee Gal Won't You Come Out Tonight. That is quite a cashy title. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it stuck okay. with me. <laughs> oh, dear. But again, they have well, the, that same feel of people who are trying to operate in an in a natural, you know, uni- a materialistic universe, mm-hmm. having to deal with these obviously not rational or, or obviously supernatural things. Well, um, definitely for, for many different types of literature, whether it's... Um, in the horror genre out of it. Um, the jungle is a fantastic setting for that because that's, that's what, what was it? Your, your, your sort of primordial fears are all there. Yeah, you know, yeah. The, the crack of the twig you hear behind you is like, oh, is that a predator? You know, <laughs> um, the, the, the log that kind of shifts under your foot and it's a boa constrictor and all that sort of thing. So, so there's already a lot there. But when you say rivers, why, why I was... And why I was surprised when you said the ocean was also a, a place of, of supernatural occurrence is that um, in terms of how quickly somebody could get help, being on the coast, of course, would be easiest. Mm. Um, going into the interior, um, again, but especially when the interior doesn't really have proper roads yet or may not have for, for quite a long time, um, the river is the main manner of transportation. And it it is also how to put it. It's also not entirely under your control. A road is something that you travel along for as far as you want. A river can sweep you away to a certain extent, or you can go down. You can go down to some area that you didn't expect. I'm trying to remember the name of. Uh, it was a foreign film festival, <clears throat> and it was a story about this man who had an idea to um, to reduce the travel time for a trade by finding another river route. But everybody said to him, no, you can't go this way because there are these rapids. And he was convinced that he could build uh, a boat that was going to, um, to go through this particular area, whatever. I can't remember exactly. 
and he he had this huge sort of paddle wheel boat and there is this scene where it does in fact end up going over not quite a waterfall but some very serious rapids and it's the 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 visual alone because there's a, there's a bit where the filmmaker has actually um filmed him sort of rushing along the, the side of the deck as as the boat is tumbling and he's got a look of absolute terror on his face and it's one of those scenes in the movie where you look at the actor and you think you're not acting are you you <laughs> are scared out of your skull <laughs> and and it really did look like that because even at that point the camera work became so blurry that you realized there was just no hope for the cameraman even standing still um of course they did a lot of you know special effects and whatever models and whatever but i think that particular bit was it was a, a bit of genuine fear but but as i said that visual where the river's not under your control either Mm-hmm. It's a road, it's a way in, but it's not under your control. And it can sweep you away to places that you don't know about, that you don't want to be, that have even more threats and so forth. So the, between between the river and the jungle, you know, it's it's, it's there's there's a lot of tension that you can get there. I think even the fact that the woman that they first found dead um they thought she had drowned, but then they saw that it didn't look as if she could have drowned, so they figured she just like died in some supernatural way but didn't the, she have a what, snake bite um it was the flute branding her okay right right well i remember that she'd been branded by the flute but i thought the doctor had thought that maybe it was snake bite yes that's right that's right but she walked into the river right you know so so that kind of thing where it's like you know it's the river is there and it helps you but it's also a way for you to die mm-hmm. <laughs> so but half a second the branding of the flute is something we should mention Ah, yes. Uh, throughout the book, in addition to the creepy flute music, in addition to the creepy smoke that comes out of the jungle, there is also this chilling effect of when something happens, when something significant happens, they will discover this imprint on the skin. You know, just just how a flute has the holes. So you would just see like a little sort of straight piece and these little dots. And it looks as if somebody has just pressed a flute brand to your skin. And I found that fascinating because the woman who died, the brand was just above her knee on her thigh. Uh-huh. And then as as you go through the book, I think the first that you notice it is Mrs. Nevinson's ankle. Something like that, yeah. And then it ends up on Jessie's, the daughter, on her chest. And then it ends up where they all are branded on the thigh. Uh-huh. And there's just this sort of this sort of creeping intimacy that kind of you know mm. is almost like a hint of sexual possession amid the ghostly possession like it's getting closer and closer in, into um getting closer more more control over your body in a way yeah that was that was really very effectively creeping but why it's worth mentioning is that um that's also a framing for how the narrator for how Milton views women because um his noticing he's the one who notices the brand on Mrs. Nevinson's ankle and we need to point out that although Mrs. Nevinson is 44 or so at the time of this telling um he he makes a point of explaining to the readers that he had quite the crush on her when yeah, he was definitely. a small boy. 
um, and that she still is as trim and shapely as ever. <laughs> so, so you get this, and, and there's this really kind of almost slightly funny, creepy bit where, as I said, he notices the brand on her ankle, and he says, "Well, you know, people with nasty minds will, you know, think will think that I, I was, will have different explanations for this." But I'm telling you, it was sheer accident that I looked at her stocking ankles and I noticed this, this, um, this brand, and then. She's, she's kind of just brushing it off, but he wants to take a closer look. So what does he do? He, he, he puts on a, a charming kind of, you know, a sort of, he sort of wheedles her and yeah. says, because he knows that she's susceptible to this. I'm like, how do you know she's susceptible to this? What are you talking about? <laughs> and and you, you begin to realize that um, it actually underlines the fact that although they are in... Uh, a reasonably sizable country, the population that they are willing to associate with is very small. It's a very limited gene pool that they're splashing yeah. in. Yes. <laughs> so, so there's this creepy sense where, you know, he kind of grew up crushing on the mother and then he ends up marrying the daughter. Mm-hmm. And, and this is fine, but then there's still these sort of odd echoes of incest going on. <laughs> Well, and it makes you wonder, okay, so given the framing narrative, Mr. and Mrs. Nevinson and Jesse are all, like, helping him out with this narrative and, and like, critiquing it and stuff. And I'll yes. be like, so if you're Jesse and you've been married to this guy for, what, at least 18 years at this point? Yeah. Yeah, what, are you, what seriously, you had a crush on my mom? <laughs> you know, what What would her reaction be to, to reading this uh, this book when it came out? You You yeah. have to wonder. Well, I think yeah, Jesse does not come Jessie out well. Or rather used to it. <laughs> yeah, she has to be used to being condescended to because that is her entire role. Ah, yeah, that's pretty terrible. But but I mean, their society is very close knit. From the very beginning, he's like, well, you know, one of Jesse's brothers is was his was his playmate, mm-hmm. and um, his there was this there's this really interesting scene at the very beginning where there's this sort of intricate dance of. Um, nepotism and employment yeah. <laughs> where let's get this straight because this is this is how he meets Mr. Nevinson in a way his father knows a Jack Nevinson that has an opening at his office um, for for um, for him to sort of like start in a nice respectable position that can possibly lead to larger things mm-hmm. so so they, they they kind of look out for each other's um, children and, and and employ them in these in these sort of good solid office job bourgeois kind of things that they can rise at, at a particular time um we're not talking about any kind of people sending the resume and choose the right person for the job or anything Ew. like that no it's all <laughs> it's all about the networks it's all about you know being the right color and being the right family and all that sort of thing so by associating with jack nevinson he then um meets up again with ralph nevinson who is actually the Mr. Nevinson of the main story. So you, you get the sense of there being a very, very tight, almost incestuous network of people. Um, and it, in a way, you can then understand why as a young man, he's like, oh, they're all bourgeois, narrow-minded, because he feels stifled. Mm-hmm. He feels stifled. He doesn't want the office job. He wants to be an artist, although there's no indication that he's really that good at it. <laughs> and <laughs> yeah. and um, he, he he's even... You can see there's a part of him that almost recognizes that society does expect him to settle down and marry Jesse. And a part of him rebels against it. But then a part of him is like, yeah, why not? And as you said, Jesse's role in the book is to go from 
having a, a almost a veneer of independence where she's 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 smoking and she's talking about boys and she's pretending to be all very radical which he then affects not to like but then as the creepy stuff happens and she becomes scared and and she becomes clingy and she becomes feminine he just starts to like her so much more because it makes him feel so strong and masculine he must protect her i know (laughs) i'm sorry but i am not kidding this is precisely what happened it's exactly what happened there's a part of it where older milton looking back on this does laugh a bit at pompous naive um silly young milton who is experiencing all these things but there's also another part of it where it's like yeah, no, you actually did think like that, didn't you? Well, yeah, there's a part where it's like, and of course, this is the way it should be, you know, where the women are dependent and the men are, and, and of course, men like women who are dependent more. I mean, duh. And there, there's a little bit of that attitude from older Milton. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, but there was one scene which I found a little bit interesting where um, Mrs. Nevinson is taking Mr. Nevinson to task, and he actually admires her strength. Mm-hmm. But it's an admiration for the strength of an older woman. He doesn't like to see it in Jesse. He doesn't right. like it in a younger woman. And I was like, hmm, you're kind of complex, but still pretty messed up. <laughs> <laughs> Although I did like the way Mr. and Mrs. Nevinson's relationship was, was depicted. I thought that it, it felt very much like a, an established, an old established marriage. It did. It did. Um, and, and Mrs. Nevinson's a bit of a cliche. I was wondering if they, if you got shades of the Bennets from them. The Bennets context. Sorry, um, Pride and Prejudice. Yeah, a little bit. Yeah. yeah. Okay. I hadn't thought of that off the top of my head, but yeah, I can see that echo. Mm-hmm. Because there is still an aspect of their relationship that, for me at least, does smack of convenience. I don't want to make it sound as bad as an arranged marriage, but there's that sense of we're operating with this small, small society, small stratum of society that we are not going to marry out of. Mm-hmm. So therefore, we're going to make the most of whoever we encounter within it. We're not going to expect to find the love of our life in here. We're just going to find somebody who we can live with comfortably. That kind yeah. of feel. Yeah, there's a there's a feeling that it's more it's become a uh, the the dominant feeling is probably affection more than love. Yeah, 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 and and tolerance, intolerance. <laughs> affection, or, and tolerance. Very or, important. Or intolerance, intolerance on occasion. <laughs> yes, yes. I, I have to admit, I actually have a soft soft spot for Mrs. Nevinson, even though she's so horribly wrong about everything. <laughs> Let me hear about your soft spot. I'm curious. Well, you know, there has to be the person who who tries to ground everybody. Mm-hmm, you mm-hmm. know, to say, well, what are you talking about, ghosts? Do you have more yes. important things to... And she's always, she's always at them. She's like, why are you using words like an encyclopedia? Does this the decline and fall by Gibbons? You know, get to the point. <laughs> right, right. The, the, she's very grounding. She's very practical. I think you definitely needed that as part of... And, and again, she's... Rayburn is practical and useful. Mrs. Mm-hmm. Nevinson is practical and complete, almost completely useless. <laughs> yes, that's true. But, but you know, that's they're, what, they're a good contrast for each other. And she's also so talkative. And, yeah. and, and, and Rayburn barely says anything. Right, you know, so right. It's, it's, they're perfect in a way. And do you know, I have to say, why I like Mrs. Nevinson is that, for me, she... She's what saves the book... From having no redeeming portrayal of a female. Even though we've been describing both her and Jessie as useless over and over and over. Well, the kind of 
okay, they weren't fully useless. <laughs> I mean, they're, they're all, all, I mean, let me, let me see. Because Mr. Nevinson, when you think about it, isn't fully useful either. Some of the things that he comes up with aren't really going anywhere. Heck, even Milton is not particularly useful <laughs> at a whole bunch of junctures. It's all Rayburn, I'm telling you. <laughs> um, but no, what I think is that because of Jesse, you get somebody who has, as I said, this this um, act, uh, this sort of tough girl act, this kind of, oh, you know, I'm an independent woman, I'm a modern woman act. And it crumbles when she's actually threatened. Yeah. And yeah. she goes into the traditional sort of you don't do you know the kind of image I get in my head? Like it's literally like the pulp magazines where you've got sort of the fifties female in scantily clad and kind of cringing, you know, onto the strong arm of a man uh-huh. away from some monster. You you actually get that in your picture, in your head when 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 Jessie's starting to experience some of these crazier things happening and she begins to lose her cool. Yeah. But Mrs. Nevinson, although she gets properly scared, does not quite give you that same image. No, no, not a bit. She's she's gonna handle it. Yeah, yeah. She may not handle it the way you expect, but right, or but or in not... an optimal fashion, but exactly. And 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 you have to admit, there's something about a woman who is going to quarrel about how you're talking, or is going to be thinking about her societal standing um, when. She's faced with something that may mean the damnation of her very soul. <laughs> there's there's a perverse sort of strength in that. Yeah, no, she had some backbone. And yeah. and it was backbone aimed at a at the sort of values that are, you know, very traditionally feminine, very traditionally feminine sphere that we don't particularly value today. Mm-hmm. But within her sphere, she had quite a bit of back, backbone. <laughs> yes, yes. So, yeah, I, I did, I did in fact, for all the horrible things that she said and the, all the, the horrible ways that she behaved, I did in fact not dislike her. Yeah. Uh, and and um, I was sort of, um, I, found her, I found her fascinating. So that's why I was intrigued when you said that you, you had a soft spot for her. Yeah, absolutely. And, and actually, I mean, honestly, even Milton's portrayal, because we've talked about the balance of new Milton or young Milton who's experiencing these things and old Milton who's writing about them, you know, that's a fairly delicate balance for an author mm. to play. Yes, it, yes. Again, it's very self-aware. In, on some ways, this is a fairly simple story. You know, when mm. you describe the, the bare bones, if you'll pardon the pun, the bare bones <laughs> of the plot, you know, family gets haunted, family solves haunting. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, there's a lot going on in this. <laughs> There's a lot going on in it, and I have to admit that one of the things I really appreciated, and I don't know if I, I don't know if I see this commonly, but you really did get a sense of everybody having some kind of flaw. Everybody had something that you could properly dislike about them. Yeah, yeah, but no, not, but some some authors really go overboard with that. <laughs> yeah, well, oh, that's true. Yeah, the the sort of the the. Uh, what was it? The anti-heroes. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, the anti-hero kind of approach. That's true. But and, and it doesn't have to be. It can be subtle. It can be. It can be very, very um, done in, in a, the very gentle touch. And it does, of course, work for them because um, the society that they're in already has its complexities, mm-hmm. and um, they react to those complexities in different ways. So, for example, um, Mrs. Nevinson's behavior, um, especially towards Rayburn initially, 
completely infuriates Mr. Devinson and Milton. That's the one time that Milton shows himself to be completely against, opposite to, um, you know, absolutely disliking Mrs. Nevinson. Right, right. Um, the other things, you know, there's there's almost a little bit of give and take. You know, even, you know, Jesse's behaving very independent or whatever. There's there's a there's a little more give in that, but they're both old both um older Milton and younger Milton did not like that. Did right. not like it, did not accept it, did not take it on. So you you do get um different ways that they are reacting to their society. And that already allows you to bring out some of their flaws or some of their flaws is not the best word. Weaknesses, perhaps. Weaknesses. Weaknesses. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I have to admit that Milton got on my nerves quite a while. <laughs> but I, I just I just cling to the Rayburn and everything's fine. <laughs> right, right. So, so tell me a little bit why you chose this particular book. Well, because, yes, it's um, a classic by virtue of being sort of a 1950s book and so forth. But because the more I read Ghosts, the more I realized that um, there were some connections. In ah. fact, um, I think one of our commenters did say, you know, why did you select the books you selected? And I'll be perfectly honest, in some cases, it's a case of what you can lay your hands on. Mm-hmm. <laughs> because Which, there's this some of was particularly challenging in that Oh, respect. this book was very challenging. I, I, but in a way, this book was the book that, I, that made me think that I wanted to look at Caribbean uh, speculative fiction. People, some people have uh, approached Caribbean speculative fiction as something that is that is new, and that is, um, you know, almost like a sort of a new thing that the authors of the region are trying on. And I'm like, no, no, this this goes way back, and Middle Holzer is part of it. Middle Holzer is part of that tradition of dealing with um, the myth and the folklore and the fantastic in a society, and just making it part of a story. So there are certain elements of, of Middle Holzer's writing that when we come to discuss Broadway, when we come to discuss Forbes, sorry, these being the, the two authors that are following next, you're going to see echoes of that. You're going to see echoes in the way they describe their natural surroundings, describe the, the forests, the jungles, um, the, the sea, and so on. You're going to see it in the way they describe family networks, you're going to see it in the way they describe society's stratification. All of that is going to be there. And while Middleholzer is the past, Broadbur is the past going into the future. Mm-hmm. And Forbes is the near future. So I like those three books together because in a way, they allow me to, to, sh- to show... <sighs> A, a kind of a little uh, a little historical clip, really, of the region, where it came from and where it thinks it's going to. Cool. And and definitely that that echo, that tradition, that similarity of, of style and approach is there. But in a, in a, in a very hmm, they're they're not identical. There there are three very different authors and I don't mean to imply that there's there's going to be so much similarity that you're looking at say you know 
um, a knockoff of the Lord of the Rings similarity kind of thing. That's oh, not what I'm no. talking about. No, no, no. I, <laughs> um, I do understand that. <laughs> but, but definitely, when you read these, you will get a sense of this is what it feels like. Now, from the very beginning, you said this wasn't magical realism. And I was like, yes, my work here is done. <laughs> because when people use magical realism to describe Caribbean literature, there's a part of me that always goes, eh, you know, I'm not a lit... I'm not a literature professor, but I know there's something not right with that. When you read these books, you will see the differences um, from what is properly called magical realism, not just in terms of the, um, the sort of the strict definition, but in terms of the sources, the origins, the style, everything. I have read A Hundred Years of Solitude, which mm-hmm. is often the one that's mentioned for magical realism and I can appreciate why people would would see connections but for me it's it's just you can't just just dump Caribbean SF and magical realism and say that's that it's far more based I think in folklore and myth and a sense of of the fantastic happening in everyday life right now not in a way where you automatically accept it because as you said when you look at my bones and my flute they're looking at this stuff and they're like, oh my goodness, let's please try to find a rational reason for this because this shouldn't be happening. Yeah, exactly. So it's, exactly. it's not like a hundred years of solitude where weird stuff happens. They're like, yeah, we'll just, we'll just roll with it. No. No, yeah. There's, there's questioning against their fate right here. <laughs> yeah, there, there's questioning. There's, there's a, a sense of trying to get control of, of things. There's a sense of trying to, to make sense of it. And, um, but there's also a sense, the Fortean sense, if you will, of we may not understand all of what is happening behind here, but it's happening to us now. We have to deal with it. Right. Um, and and I do find that very um, compelling, shall we say, in terms of, of the literature, because um, it makes for good storytelling. It really does. No, it, absolutely. Absolutely. And like I say, I've, I found that this, this book, I was especially pleased by simply how readable it was. Some some books don't age well, either in terms of mm-hmm. their style or their content. And mm-hmm. obviously this has, you know, it's steeped in a societal time and a societal place that, you know, has incredibly deeply unpleasant... It, it's, it's resting on very unpleasant foundations, as we've talked yeah. about the racism yeah. and the sexism and all that. But... Yeah, in terms of being a story and, and the craft of its writing, it's mm-hmm. very readable. Yeah, yeah. And it I think, from, from my own point of view, I think it is readable because it does come out of, out of a tradition of telling stories. So, well, I shouldn't, I shouldn't say that immediately because the next one you're looking at is The Rainmaker's Mistake, right? Yep, yep. And I have said repeatedly that that one is a challenging one. Yes, uh, so, you've, 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 so, you've amped up my, my anxiety levels. I'm about sorry. I, I, I really should just <laughs> shut up about that. But in a way, I'm warning the readers as well who are going to do it, you know, think of it as um, not quite Caribbean Lit 101. This is the higher level. But um, there is a sense of making a story enjoyable. Making a story more than just a list of facts, more than just a, a plot that fits together, very much making it something that, um, that draws you in and, and keeps you along for the ride. So, so yeah, yeah. Absolutely. You're quite right. Yeah. Okay, cool. Well, let's, let's put a wrap up on this episode. Mm-hmm. And 
So next episode, we're thinking of talking about uh, Egan and some of the the rest of the Ted Chang stories. That's correct. Um, we're going to be delving into, um, you mentioned specifically, Hell is the Absence of God. Ah, yes, we definitely need to talk about <laughs> that one. In fact, now now I'm... You, you were talking about how beautifully your your selections, you know, your three selections fit together in terms of moving through. I was like, oh, mine don't have a common thread. Hey, wait, Hell's the Absence of God, Oceanic and Oracle, and, um, and Mary Doria Russell's The Sparrow. Apparently, I'm interested in religion in SF. <laughs> <laughs> which is okay, which is okay, and I'll tell you why. We did, I don't know if you remember this, but we did say when we started discussing this that we wanted to discuss books that would draw on our background strengths. Mm-hmm. So although in hard SF there was the nuts and bolts, physics, engineering, whatever, which you have, there was also the question of how they dealt with the bigger questions, the big right. philosophical questions, the big why are we here type questions, and also the question of um, created societies. You know, you, you make up an alien society or you make up a future society. How well have you portrayed that society? So that mm-hmm. was where my sociology comes in. So we did we did still have a connection. And, and there is the societal stuff, I think, probably will come out more with the, um, the spiral. Okay, yes, yes. That's going to be a big deal in that. But there's been echoes of it already in um, some of Ted Chang's work because, as I said, even his short stories are so richly complex in terms of societies that they show you. And there's a definite deep philosophical questioning in all three of those authors. Mm-hmm. Um, um, questions of, of ethics, questions of identity, existence, like, you know, destiny and so on. So those, those are the big questions. And um, it's really exciting when you see people using a hard SF framework to address those kind of questions. I think it will be interesting, or at least I sure hope so. so. <laughs> and then, of course, it is also a case of what we could lay hands on easily. That too. And, <laughs> and for me, I won't lie, it's a little bit of what have I been reading recently? <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Nothing wrong with that. And also um, things that you... Um, hear about that are interesting or that you have encountered that are interesting that you wish to share with other people. So our motives are never pure. No, no. Once you appreciate that and just go with the flow, we will try to make it as entertaining as possible for you. Exactly. Okay, so to everybody, thank you for listening and I hope you'll tune in in a couple weeks when we talk about Ted Chang and Greg Egan. Yes. Take care till then. Bye.